Welcome to High Bry Low Bry, the show where our podcast hosts Steve Pyle and Dan Slattery pit high art against low culture. In this episode, Steve defends Peter Greenaway's art house classic, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover, to Dan, who felt the title wasn't long enough. It should have been The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, Her Lover and The Bored Viewer. Meanwhile, Dan defends 80s classic Electric Dreams to Steve, who thought it was about as much fun as electric shock treatment. Please note, this episode was recorded shortly before the death of Electric Dreams star Lenny Von Dolan was announced in the news. As always, beware spoilers and enjoy the show. Hello ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to Highbrow Lowbrow episode 3. Uh, very pleased to be recording uh, this episode, I think we've uh, got into the swing of things now, you know the, uh, the, the premise of the show, but if you don't I make one Highbrow recommendation. Um, and 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 defend it uh, to Dan, and then D- Dan makes a somewhat lowbrow recommendation of a film, and, and he defends <laughs> he defends it to me. Um, so my highbrow recommendation for this week is the film The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. It's d- directed by Peter Greenaway, and I, it's it's a it's probably a unique film in in the history of British cinema and the history of cinema at all, really. So. The basic plot is it's all set, mostly set in this restaurant, which the the thief of the title, Michael Gambon, he's a local East End villain and he's he's taken over it. He's coerced the uh, the cook of the title, um, Richard, into, um, it, it, you know, into going into partnership with him. Well, look at the partnership is more just extortion. Um, uh, and the wife is Helen Mirren, uh, the, the wife of uh, Michael Gambon, the thief. Um, and basically Gambon holds court in this restaurant with his um, cronies. And um, he's frequently, you know, humiliating everyone, causing scenes, committing these acts of outright cruelty and sadism. And, uh, uh, and he's absolutely despicable. He's a monster. But he also, and this is where it kind of gets quite blackly comic and, and I think really funny, is he fancies himself as a gourmand. He goes into these r- ridiculous uh, lectures about uh, the delicacies of French food, which he clearly knows nothing about. He can't even pronounce them. So he does these like these hilarious lectures. He's, he's, he's kind of you know self-important and bloated. And, and while this is going on, Helen Mirren, the, the gangster's mole, you know, long-suffering wife, she spots a man at the other end of the uh, restaurant reading a book, you know, a well-dressed kind of, you know, bookish, scholarly-looking man. Um, and they exchange looks, and then they meet in the toilet, and without ever saying a word to each other, they embark on this affair. It's it's very raunchy, it's, it's erotic, uh, they're having this affair you know, in the toilets or in the kitchen or in the, in the, in the stock room, while the cook um, and numerous restaurant staff are kind of uh, facilitating them in this affair. They're, they're covering it up as best they can. Um, and um, I think that's what I'll say in terms of plot, because I don't want to give too much away, but obviously the, the thief, Michael Gambon, is not someone you want to cross, so there's a great deal of tension. Um, it's probably not, you know, a, a, you remembered as a particularly, you know, plot-based film. It's it's remembered for shocking people and becoming a minor hit. Greenaway's films hadn't been that commercially successful up to this point. 
uh, with the exception of the Grassman's contract, um, that they're, they're, they're considered arty and intellectual, and um, you know, lots of kind of puzzles going on within them, which are which are which are very interesting to figure out. But they're they're a little they're often considered cold and academic. This was a big hit, and it was a sleeper hit because word began to filter out beforehand that there was this film coming out that was a bit sleazy, a bit sexy, had a bit of gore, and it had shock value. So people would, you know, people would go along just out of curiosity because um, it, it, it challenged the censorship rules of the time, particularly in America, where it wasn't given an R rating. It was, it was they said you could have cut over half an hour of it or take the X rating, and the X rating is is uh, commercial death. Um, but they took the X rating, and it ended up being uh, still a commercial hit, surprisingly, even though with an X rating, you're not going to get into many uh, theaters in America. Um, what, I, what I will say about it is, um, even if you struggle with the violence in the film and, and the sex, um, there is just so much to admire here. It's so rich. It's like a tapestry. Um, like, for instance, it, it, it begins with a really shocking incident that, that just, um, that sets the tone. Well, well, well that, it's almost throwing down the gauntlet to the viewer to say, if you can get through this, you can get through the film. And what it is, is that Michael Gambon arrives at the restaurant with all these crooks, uh, his gang, and they beat up this uh, chef who who Gambon feels doesn't treat him with enough respect, and they really beat him up, and they, you know, it, it, I mean, it's obviously chocolate or something, but they, they force-feed force feed him shit, basically, dog shit. Um, and and it's horrible to watch. Uh, but then they go into the restaurant, and and the sets are just amazing. It's it's quite theatrical. I think it's it's giving a nod and a wink to the to the viewer to say, well, well, this is a film. You know, you can you can see the sets kind of kind of being a bit malleable and being being set up, so to speak. But um, the 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 costumes are by Jean Paul Gaultier. The the, um, the 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 they've got a kind of new romantic look. This was 1989, and I think it's very much an 80s movie. And there's these wonderful tracking shots. Uh, that sweep you through the restaurant and you go from room to room and there's a wonderful color scheme um for instance red for the big dining room and helen Mirren's dress actually changes color whichever room she's in white for the toilet she she's suddenly addresses white uh green for the kitchen blue for outside and obviously that's kind of uh tonal tonally um you know, red for anger and and, and whatnot, red, red for passion, and um, um, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, that's what well, that's what I'd like to make my highbrow recommendation: the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover. Um, I think I've given my initial pitch, and I'll, I'll save some more details. And there's a lot of details about this film uh, for the questioning. So, um, Dan, I, I believe you saw it. Did you see it when it first came out? I did see it um, when I was a student, uh, when that would have been the early 90s. So I probably did go and see it um, because of the, I was probably drawn in by the, oh, this one really challenged the censors. Uh, it was a cinema just around the corner from my whole residence. And it also showed, for example, Bad Lieutenant and um, films like that. So, yes, yeah, so I saw it in, would have been 91. Um, and well, I mean, watching it again, I just thought I was probably just taken in with the whole oh, challenging viewing thing. But actually, um, 
apart from that, I just thought it was rather interminable. I mean, the sets look lovely and they're well decorated. And I did notice um, the change of dress in Helen Mirren and the, the tracking shots, the way they're all set up. It's all very impressive. Um, I've got a question for you. I don't know if you know the scene where Michael Gambon feeds Tim Roth something and then says to him, it's a sheep's testicle. Yeah. Do you think it really was a sheep's testicle that he gave to him? Um, well, that's interesting because the, the the meals were set up by this very uh, in vogue London Italian chef at the time. I'm just going to look it up. Um, who who did all the meals? Ronald McDonald. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Colonel Saunders, Marco Pierre White, Gordon Ramsay. No, no, no. Is this, I think it was Italian. Uh, Giorgio Locatelli. And let's see, he only would have been in his 20s at the time, but he was definitely uh, at the top of his game. Uh, I would, it would have surprised me if it was the sheep's testicle because one of the things Greenaway says is that, you know, if you do a film with me, I, I want you to know that you're going to have to push the boundaries in terms of nudity and stuff. Um, and that's certainly true of this because... Um, even though there's lots of, I mean, it's quite erotic and sexy in places, but you know, the nudity is quite graphic. So when you're seeing all the wobbly bits, you know, you start to think after a while, it starts to get a bit too much, you know? Uh, so I think it wouldn't surprise me at all if he made Tim, the young Tim Roth eat a sheep's testicle. And that kind of comes back into the story later because Gambon says to him, you know, I, I'd expect you to chew the bollocks of anyone for me, meaning you'd have to kill for me. And, you know, a murder does take place later in the film. Mm -hmm. uh, and that line of dialogue is is referenced. Um, so, um, yeah, but I mean, the food's flying all over the place. I mean, it's, it's practically a food flight in places, isn't it? Because he's going yeah. on all these runs. <laughs> well, what did you think of the costumes? Did, did you think they were kind of new romantic? I, I wouldn't have said new romantic as such, but certainly very um, flamboyant. I mean, I did spot in the credits, it was... Uh, Gautier who designed them and certainly they looked fantastic um, you know and very colourful and matched the colours of the sets and everything like that. Just the the other thing I wanted to, with Greenaway the scene where the two lovers are bundled into a lorry which is full of carcasses mm -hmm. um, I, I was just watching that I thought oh I bet those are really yeah and the actors reactions are yeah not you know they're not acting yeah so, you, you, suffering for one's art yeah you can almost smell them can't you uh, yes the, the rotting food yeah um it took me a, a couple of viewings because i saw it i mean i was too young to see it in the cinema but i remember when it was shown you know on channel four because it was like green and Ray really had a boon from those uh, film four years when mm -hmm. channel four emerged in the 80s and started funding off the wall stuff and, you know, it was quite, it was far too young and it, it just shocked me and appalled me. And then revisiting it in lockdown and watching all the Greenaway's films, I got past the shock value and I enjoyed, you know, just putting it together, things that I missed. I didn't realise that those two trucks full of meat had arrived at the start of the film. And it's, uh, I've forgotten, they were actually, suppose, a gift from Michael Gambon, obviously stolen to to give to the to the cook. And yes, then and then they later they provide the getaway for the lovers once Michael Gambon finds out. When it was first released, a lot of the British critics, a common analysis of the film was that it was an indictment to Thatcherism. And what is it now? They 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 think that it was said that the, the thief was Thatcher or the Thatcher government. 
the cook was the kind of timid civil service that essentially feeds the government. The wife, Helen Mirren, is Britannia, and the lover is, is the kind of ineffectual intellectual opposition to, to Thatcher. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's, you know, valid, and obviously the film is 30 years old now, so we might watch it differently. I, I, I don't get the impression that Greenaway's that much of a political animal. He usually reserves his strongest criticisms for things like, you know, Christianity and organized religion, which he's, he's not fond of. But what did you think of the cast? Did you did you spot a lot of faces that would go on to have great careers? Ian Jury was there. Boise from Only Fools and Horses. Yeah, which is in fact, yeah. And oh, wait, of... no, you mean Trigger from Only Fools and Horses, right? Oh, I thought he played Boise. Okay, Trigger from Only Fools and Horses, my mistake. <laughs> So who played Boise then? Boise was played was Boise played by John Chalice? Oh, possibly. Yeah. Right. So it was trigger. It was trigger then. Right. Yeah. My mistake. Anyway, somebody, somebody from Only Fools and Horses. <laughs> I was surprised Dean Jury wasn't allowed to. I, I thought it would just this is the kind of film where if he did suddenly break into an Ian Jury in the Blockheads classic, it would you know it's, nobody would bat an eyelid. <laughs> Because yeah. that off-key singing that the the choir boy did as well, I thought that was quite clever. Where you thought it was part of the soundtrack, and then it was actually him singing, and then he actually sings quite badly when he's serving the meal to the wife and her lover, and <laughs> and he says to him, "Can we call on you later?" And you're thinking later being like never again. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah, yeah, they're quite enraptured of each other. I mean, um, I think what that would do to you as, as a young lad seeing, you know, two naked uh, lovers basically in heat um, before you and you're, you're serving them food and, and trying to chat about the books uh, around. Yeah, there's a few other faces as well. Syrian Hines um, is, is very good in it. Ian Jury um, was at art school with Greenaway. Ah, okay. Yeah, and, um, and I think obviously he was... <laughs> love of art you know is very apparent here and the way, way the shots are framed particularly at the dinner table and and obviously there's this huge painting of Franz Hals hung up in the in the dining room which later appears outside for some reason again I think it's the kind of theatrical thing because the curtain is drawn at the, at the beginning of the film and the curtain comes down at the end of the film and uh, um, Gambon's gang um, their outfits seem to match the, the the outfits of the militia in the Franz Hulls painting. Here's a, here's a question for you: How much were you absolutely rooting for Gambon to get the worst comeuppance you know you could possibly think of him? Absolutely, I just thought he's you know there's no redeeming features whatsoever when he gets angry. He's like a cut price Michael Caine. And I just thought, that, but that's the whole point. I think he's meant to be, like you say, he's meant to be boorish with delusions of grandeur, and he has absolutely no clue what he's talking about. Yeah, from the moment, I just thought, oh, you're you're not a pleasant character, and we're not meant to think that you are. The political metaphor, just I didn't spot that at all. But then this is somebody who read the line, "The Witch in the Wardrobe," as a child and didn't spot the Christian metaphor in it for it for until it was pointed out to me as an adult. So these things tend to go over my head, really. No, I, I no, Dan, I didn't spot it when I when I watched it. When I, I caught, I'm sure I didn't spot it as a child, but when I when I rewatched it a year or two ago, I didn't I didn't think that and again I think Greenaway's been a bit coy on that point he's not a huge well I'm sure he is political I mean we're all political we've all got our beliefs but he's definitely not in the kind of Ken Loach camp 
you know, right. he's, he's not kind of agitpop and Loach's films. They're someone who I find really dreary. It's just one screed after another uh, with his films. But, um, you know, I think it, it might be a valid way to, to read it that way. But I think, you know, broadly speaking, you could switch any government and, and say, well, we're all consumerists, you know, all, all the eating of meat, the dogs eating meat at the beginning, and we're all just consuming meat and, and you know, and then crapping it out. And there's, there's, a, there's a great deal of, you know, gluttony going on. And, uh, but, you know, I don't really like hyper-violent films, especially not horror films. And it's, it's interesting, I was thinking, well, why does this film upset some people and leave them very angry? And it doesn't leave me angry, whereas other films like, say, New French Extremity or or Torture Porn, I just couldn't watch because they would just upset me too much. It's, it's, and the, the only thing I can think of is that we all have our different triggers. And what makes me, you know, not angry about this film and, and enjoying this film is that um, the, the vicious beating that takes place at the start, then you see a few minutes later, you see the victim hobble naked into the kitchen where, where the staff immediately help him. They wash him down and they give him a snifter of brandy, which is a heck of a way of helping him when he's just been beaten up, but he seems to like it. Uh, and then subsequently, and again, without giving too much away, Gambon begins to isolate himself from every member of his gang. It's interesting that everybody knows that this affair is going on and it's so blatant, but mm-hmm. Gambon can't see it. And, you know, the, the gang begin to drift away because some of them, don't like violence towards women or someone don't like violence towards children you know they have their own moral codes even though they're they're also east end villains um and then at the denouement everybody who's wronged in the film by gambon gets their revenge they're all present at the revenge mm-hmm. kind of like you know murder at the Orient express in that way um and 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 gambon almost singularly is the is the recipient of that revenge so it has been compared to a you know, a Jacobean uh, revenge saga. Perhaps that's a, a more long-standing analysis than, say, it's an indictment of Thatcherism when, you know, a year a year after this film released, well, well Thatcher stood down. So you, you don't want to you don't want to hold to that analysis too much, otherwise, the film dates that way. You mentioned that it's uh, you know about the whole idea of the the dogs metaphor. I mean, this is the week as well. If I can go off on a slight tangent, that Pink Floyd have finally agreed to release a remix of Animals that was done four years ago. I, I have very little time for Animals because of the way it just kind of rams its social its uh, animals metaphor down your throat really, and I just listen to it and I think this is interminably dull. But I just thought it's an inter- it's an interesting comparison that um, Roger and Peter Greenaway are making the same point. Um, Peter doing it slightly more subtly than Roger Waters does. Uh, the other thing which did make me was the the way the film is slightly self-referential because the lover at one point says, I once watched a film where the leads didn't say anything for 30 minutes. And of course, for 30 minutes, the, the dialogue between him and the wife just doesn't exist. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting that the thief breaks the silence for him when he calls over the lover to sit at their table. Greenaway's an interesting chap. I mean, he's he comes across as like, I'm not sure he'd be easy to talk to because when he's interviewed, it's almost like the interviewer doesn't exist. He just he just talks and he and he talks almost in this kind of lecture style. I don't mean he he's lecturing us about morality or anything. It's just he talks almost like an academic. The script is entirely in his head. Uh, no pauses, no, um, you know, it's one reference after another and it all seems coherent. Um, 
I, I guess, so some of his ideas are a little bit loopy. Uh, for instance, around about 2000, he hadn't had a hit for a few years and then suddenly announced that cinema was dead and he wasn't going to make another film. And then he made these Tulsi Leaper suitcases, essentially multimedia things and there's free films. They are unwatchable. They are absolutely unwatchable. I think they were only released in like Spain and Ukraine or wherever he was getting funding from. I've, I've tried, I've, I've watched every proper feature film that, you know, uh, every, every main feature film by Peter Greenway, some of his television stuff and some of his short stuff. I couldn't watch these Tulsi Leaper suitcases things. They were just interminable. They were plotless. They were incredibly pretentious. Uh, and I think he genuinely did think that cinema was dead. And then, um, but because of the disaster of, of that project, he has thankfully come back to slightly more conventional filmmaking, at least by his standards. And he made Night Watching, which is a wonderful film about Rembrandt and uh, with Martin Freeman as Rembrandt and, and the painting of the Night Watch. Um, oh, yeah. Another one of his ideas is that cinema is too text based. It should be more visual, which I, I, I guess, you know, you'd appreciate. He, he thinks that cinema uh, is, is far too much in hock to the 19th century novel. And that too many um, too many films are based on nineteenth or twentieth century novels. When he thinks that was a very small contribution to civilization, and he's much more theatrical and painterly and in his compositions and whatnot. So, so well, if if I can, you know, begin to wrap up my recommendation. It's a high bar recommendation. You, you know what you're going in for, like I say, with previous recommendations like Barry Lyndon and Killing Them Softly. If you watch, say, Barry Lyndon, you're going to know it's going to be slow and epic and, and kind of stately paced. And if you watch Killing Them Softly, you know it's going to be kind of dialogue driven. With The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and The Lover, it's a little bit of everything. It's not slow, though. It It, it is definitely art house. It is definitely, I guess, a lot of references to, say, Jacobean theatre and, and the golden age of Dutch painting and fine cuisine and, and you name it just one reference after another and also you, if you struggle with violence you've got to um you've got to ask yourself is this film for me but when steve pemberton the, the guy you know the comedian who does the, the comic actor the league of gentlemen says if you can get through the opening assault which is which is vicious and brutal and shocking you can get through whatever follows in the film because although there are several shocking moments from that moment if you can accept that assault the film just holds you and uh, it does draw you into its world i've got to be honest I, with greenaway like i say I, I saw this film as a, as a young kid and it upset me but it also held me kind of spellbound in the worst way and then when i revisited watched all the greenaway's films i i, I really began to appreciate them i mean some of them like the tulsi leaper thing i, I told you about was too pretentious but many of them are wonderful. Draftsman's Contract, Belly of an Architect. Yeah, I really like Drowning by Numbers, The Pillow Book, Night Watching. I've mentioned Goldsitz and, uh, and the Pelican Company is wonderful. He's, he's very much enamored with digital technology right now. He's been doing a lot of things with that. But, uh, you know, I, I, this is the first time I've actually gone to bat for him. I, I haven't written about him. I haven't done anything formal with him because I was just too intimidated by his reputation and his films are too um, too intellectual, too highbrow for me. I didn't know where to start with them. So um, so this has kind of broken me in. Whether I'll, whether I'll do anything uh, formal, like, you know, try and write an article on him in the future, I really don't know. But uh, okay, so that's my recommendation for, for this week. The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover. Uh, any, any final questions, Dan? First of all, yes, the opening scene is 
is shocking. But in terms of violence, obviously, you and I have different um, tolerance levels, which is fine. But I didn't think it was the most violent movie I've ever seen. I mean, I draw the line of torture porn as well. I mean, I watched Hostel and thought, oh, and didn't even bother with like the human centipede but certainly some of the you tend to see more the after effects of the violence rather than the violence itself and sometimes those scenes can be quite bloody but um in terms of actual violence it's more i found it was more kind of inferred by michael gambon and you thought he's capable of of terrible things and i think a lot of it is left to the imagination like whenever he assaults the choir boy and force feeds him buttons then you know, I think a lot of that is hinted at rather than actually um, explicitly seen. And the other thing was, I remember when you first suggested this, I made fun of the Michael Nyman score because I thought Michael Nyman was quite repetitive. Um, I listened to this and actually I've done Nyman a disservice on this one. I probably was thinking of when somebody lent me the score to, I think it was a Z and Two Knots. Yes. or some of his violin concertos, and I think I find them quite repetitive and monotonous. And I just thought after Nyman and Greenaway split, Nyman seemed to become more tuneful with the piano, and I love his score to Gattaca, for example. So I've done Nyman. His score is, is fine. It's uh, not particularly memorable, I'm going to say, but not as monotonous as um, his earlier works would be. Yeah, well, it's interesting because you mentioned a Z and two notes, and that's one of my least favourite Greenaway films. Um, it's interesting that the score might be a little bit dull as well. Uh, for this one, Nyman's pieces, some of them are cobbled together from earlier pieces. So Memorial, which begins the film and ends the film, and and the ending of the film, the score is that that, that piece is played in its entirety of, of 12 minutes or so, which is rare in a film. That was originally written as a tribute to, to the victims of the Heysel Stadium disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's another piece called Fish Beach, which he'd actually earlier written for a, for a Greenaway film called Drowning by Numbers, which I also have a lot of time for. I've heard they've, they've kept rather quiet about why they stopped working together because they worked together for 10 years and those were at least 10 years, and those were definitely Greenaway's golden years where he was, you know, the critic's darling and, and whatnot. I've heard some things, you know, just on kind of, you know, chat forums of, from Greenaway fans saying that they did have a falling out. The film they made after this, Prosperous Books, which is Greenaway's typically unconventional adaptation of The Tempest, would be their last collaboration. I don't know if Nyman turned down the film after that, Greenaway did call the baby Macan, which is even more violent than this one and kind of even more shocking. Although I defend parts of it. Maybe Nyman turned it down because he thought that that particular film was too violent. Uh, you know, maybe they fell out, they've worked together for too long and they needed to go in different directions. Who knows? But it, it was interesting that, that Pink Floyd comparison you made earlier because that, that I think around the time around animals. David Gilmore and Roger Waters started to have very different ideas about what the band should be. Even though um, Gilmore and Waters' politics aren't that far apart, they're, they're both fairly liberal left-wing. Maybe maybe Waters is a bit more of a socialist. Uh, Waters, uh, I think... Um, I mean, you, you know more about Pink Floyd than I do, so correct me if I'm wrong here, but, but Waters wanted Pink Floyd to be quite a political band and David Gilmore was more like, that's not really the role of a of a rock and roll band, we should be more musical and lyrical. Is, is that a fair assumption of where you think Pink Floyd began to tear themselves apart? 
Roger just saw himself as contributing more and more material, which which was true. You know, Richard Wright didn't contribute anything to animals, and that was a sore point that carried over into the making of the wall, which I think whenever Floyd worked best for me anyway, when they're dealing with more personal things like wish you were here, the missing of somebody, somebody leaving, the wall being isolation, the overtly political elements like animals in the final cut are difficult to listen to because sometimes the message is just getting kind of hammered through your brain and the tunes aren't there it depends as well what the lyrical theme is as to how successful the album is as well and whether it hangs together as a, as a thematic whole animals just for me is no it's the songs just go on far too long i think if i if i had to pick one from the album it would be sheep but that would be it and just no it, it ne- i've never warmed to it at all. I mean, and I like that period of Floyd during the 70s, but that's the one album I just think, no, give that a miss. So, I mean, it has its fans and it did very well for them, um, but I'm not one of them. Yeah, yeah, I'm probably with you on that. I, I probably don't hate it as much as you, but I mean, if I think once you get to the wall, and goodness knows the wall is flawed, it's, you know, it's far too long. And, but there are, there is some terrific music there and there, there are some great songs and that helps balance out some of the more overtly political and some maybe some of the more clunkier thematic things in it. Okay, so I've given my highbrow recommendation. It'd be, it'd be, it'd be interesting to see if if, if, um, if there are any Greenaway fans out there or anyone. If I, I'd say if you're interested in the films of Greenaway, this might be a good one to start with because, like I say, it was a commercial hit and he's had very few. I think, you know, he doesn't make films for the money. He... he um, you, you know, I think he just makes them for the joy of making movies. Uh, I think... You know, Draftsman's contract, which was his first narrative feature, it did fairly well, the, and that, that got great reviews. The only person who didn't like it apparently was Alan Parker, who called it the Draftsman's contract, and he said, "If Greenaway ever gets the funding to make another film in the UK, I'm going to leave." Well, Greenaway did, and I'm not sure if it, I'm not sure if Alan Parker made another film in the UK after that, but he he really didn't like it. But yeah, and I think the Pillow Book did okay with Ewan McGregor because that was that mid '90s phase when Ewan McGregor was really hot. In um, just after train spotting, so I'd say you know start with the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover, and see where you go from there in the Greenaway canon. Shall we move on to your recommendation, Dan? Right, my recommendation is a film called Electric Dreams, which uh, was directed by a guy called Steve Barron, who had a history as a pop video director. One of the pop videos he did was a has take on me he also did billy jean by michael jackson and would also do money for nothing by dire straits so he's very good at doing the very colorful films with this writer called rusty lemurad they came up with this plot involving uh, a boy who buys called miles who buys a computer called edgar who proceeds to call him moles this was at a time in 80s movies when computers on screen could do then what they can just about do now um so obviously then you could pack into the pentagon and cause world war three and war games or it could control every device in your house and make your life hell which you can just about do now hello alexa um sorry i've just i've just set off my alexa by saying that. <laughs> that's appropriate i think yeah <laughs> very messenger boy <laughs> Never mind, Alexa. I didn't mean it. Um, please don't take over my house. Um, so they pitched this to Richard Branson, who uh, 
isn't, or certainly wasn't at the time, the most technically savvy. And they were saying to him, Richard, this is in 1984, we're at the start of the computer boom. They're going to take over the, you know, the world. They're going to change things as we know it. But obviously not, maybe not at the speed as which um, Hollywood would suggest. So it stars Lenny von Dolan as, um, as Miles. Um, Virginia Madsen, who I know you like, as Madeline, the girl in the apartment block who plays the cello in the orchestra. It has Maxwell Caulfield in the orchestra as another love interest. So it's really boy meets girl love triangle with computer in the middle with uh, a, a great soundtrack and not much else. It's just one big 90-minute pop video, really, if I'm honest. It totally bombed in the US and the UK. But the, the soundtrack did really well. I mean, phenomenally well. That's how I first came to know about the film anyway, because um, I'm a big uh, Electric Light Orchestra fan. And it was only browsing through the local record shop under Electric Light Orchestra. I came across Electric Dreams and Jeff Lynne of ELO contributed two tracks to it. So I heard the soundtrack long before I heard I saw the film. And I was just doing a quick bit of maths. And out of 10 tracks, six of them were released as singles. Uh, with varying degrees of success. The one that people probably will know the most is the Giorgio Moroder and Philip Oki track mm -hmm. together in Electric Dreams, which um, is the end of the film. One of the other reasons it was ages until I saw the film was um, our local video shop, uh, which I won't name so it's not to embarrass them, had a, how can we put this, a kind of slightly adult section as well. And one of the range of adult videos was called Electric Blue. And for whatever reason, the video shop owner insisted in putting Electric Dreams, this thing, in with Electric Blue. It would be a bit difficult to say to your dad, but hang on, Dad, no, 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 no. I know I've just got it from the adult section, but really it's about a boy, a girl, and a computer. Um, and, yeah, and then you'd start thinking, well, you could start mentioning stuff like a hard disk and RAM and, oh, you just, oh, no. It's just, you, you couldn't sell it, really, could you? Um, you couldn't convince your dad. And then also, I think when I was at school, somebody told me a different ending, which is a real downer. And I thought, oh, well, I don't know if I want to see the film then. Um, I'll just enjoy the soundtrack. But then it was only later on somebody else said, no, that was a complete wind-up. So eventually I did get to see the film. And, but one of the things that struck me was how much of the music actually is in the film. It's almost as if the songs were recorded before the film. Usually in a soundtrack, you get a snippet of a song, but certainly for one of them, like Culture Club's The Dream, that is in the film for its entirety. I think Jeff Lynne's Let It Run gets you know a full airing, and there's one bit of the soundtrack, The Jewel by Giorgio Moroder, and that is where... Madeline is practicing the cello in her in her apartment and Edgar, the computer, can hear this through the vent and he generates his music and they kind of play off against each other. And that, of course, that whole sequence is part of the film. So it's it's a very musical film. And Giorgio Moroder provided a lot of the soundtrack to that. You know, that was when it kind of when in his heyday when he was doing Flashdance and Metropolis and would later go on and do Top Gun. And just looking at Steve Barron's previous efforts before he did this, he'd already done a kind of video album, very 80s thing, this with Brian Adams, using the videos from the Reckless album, like Run To You and Heaven, and created Reckless the Movie, this oh. half-hour thing with some little narrative thread in between all the videos. So that was almost like a trial run for this. And Steve also directed a lot of the promo videos to do with the Electric Dreams soundtrack, for example, he directed Together in Electric Dreams. So he was very much involved 
in all aspects of it. It is just a great big pop video. And I make no apologies for that. It's just a lot of fun with a great soundtrack. I'm not a big Culture Club fan, but so it has the one Culture Club song I like <laughs> called Love is Love. It's part of the soundtrack. But Culture Club also, they contribute two tracks. One of their singers, Helen Terry, has her own track on it. They also wrote the title track for the soul legend that is P.P. Arnold. And there's also a version of Love is Love sung by P.P. Arnold. So in fact, when you take the soundtrack, which doesn't include all the bits of music um, used in the film, I should point out, and then all the videos and then all the B-sides and 12-inch mixes, you've got quite a big library of things there. Now, obviously, because Virgin was behind the funding for this, a lot of the artists are on Virgin, apart from Jeff Lynne, who was on CBS at the time. So it is very Virgin-centric, because it's also like having 17 in there. But I do enjoy it as an album, and I do enjoy it as a film. And as a result of their collaboration, Philip Oakey and Giorgio Moroder went off and made an album, and Steve Barron directed one of the videos from that as well. And he's always had a good working relationship with the Human League. He directed Don't You Want Me, and also... Aha, he's done a lot of videos for them um, since, and he's still working today. He's um, done an episode of, just quickly looking at IMDb, so an episode of Murder in Provence this year. Although, whenever the film bombed, Richard Branson did say to him, maybe stick to making music videos. And for a while he did, although he did make Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles, the movie in 1990. But we won't go there. We'll just draw a discreet feel over that. He also did the video to Underground by David Bowie from the wonderful Labyrinth soundtrack. But again, we won't go there. Well, here's my um, my initial response to the film. Yeah, you know, going into it knowing, thinking it wouldn't necessarily be my cup of tea. But I was quite charmed by the love story. But then I had to keep reminding myself that they weren't in high school because it felt like a high school romance to me. Mm -hmm. Um, I had to remind myself that they're, you know, they're young professionals. And, you know, I, I like Virginia Madsen. I think she's, you know, one of the world's most beautiful women. Um, I, I don't think, you know, this is her greatest role. <laughs> I think, I think it, she, she'd probably be a bit prouder of, you know, Candyman and Sideways or, or something like The Hot Spot, directed by Dennis Hopper, based on Charles Williams' novel. That's, that's a good one. And one thing I thought was, you know, Considering it was quite a sweet love story with kind of high school vibes, maybe they were both too good looking. Do you know what I mean? M maybe if, if the guy had been geekier, it might have been sweeter that she was falling for a really geeky guy. But, you know, you know, he was quite handsome. So I was kind of like, oh, maybe they missed a trick there. I can see your point, but this is the 80s, you know, where everybody was good looking, even the geeks, you know? <laughs> So that's probably why they went with that. The, the thing is, as well, this was Steve's first attempt at a movie. This was Rusty's first writing um, effort. So, and certainly in one of the, you know, the making ofs, they, all the, you know, the cast and crew would say we were all so young. And this is one of the first things that Richard Branson had funded after the disaster. The, well, when I say disaster, the disaster side was trying to get the arrhythmics soundtrack on to 1984 but that's a whole different controversy which deserves a whole episode in itself so this was his first kind of successful marriage of pop music to a plot <laughs> if such a thing exists but i take your point it is kind of written very much like a high school romance 
and it is quite naive and you know charming in its naivety i suppose but yes it it does stretch the 90 minutes running time really you know there's oh, not yeah. there's not really that much of a plot is there no and and i think that was its biggest weakness is that i, I was watching it and you may maybe we were like half an hour into it and i'm like it feels like they're struggling to get to the next scene you know it feels like this scene is kind of so drawn out that like how are they going to get to the next scene you know where's the story going next that that's where i felt like oh oh yeah this is where it falls down um but i'll tell you something interesting you know after because i didn't know much of the backstory there which which you've described you know in in good detail Mm -hmm. is that after i watched it i went on youtube i watched the trailer for the film and I was just like, I tell you what, I'm not surprised it bombed because the trailer was rubbish. They really didn't know how to sell it. But then I watched the Electric Dreams music video. And you think to yourself, oh my word, if, if I'd seen that music video, I would have gone and seen the film. And there's something similar for Absolute Beginners, which which was a big box office bomb. You know, it kind of bankrupted Goldcrest films. But but I've got some time for it and I quite like it. The trailer is appalling. But then David Bowie's music video for, you know, the title song is absolutely brilliant and and you think oh but this is a much better advert for the film than the trailer ever was together in electric dreams did have the kind of dual purpose of trying to promote the song which was doing rather well and trying to get people to see the the film which of course wasn't doing quite so well so i suppose that's partly why virginia imagine appears in the video to try and help cross promote the the two just a, a quick anecdote about that was when they were recording it phil Oakey apparently wrote the lyrics on a back of a cigarette packet and he went into the microphone and did a take and George and Marota went yep that's fine that's great thanks very much and he was <laughs> uh, no hang on that was just rehearsal can I do another one and they went oh, all right then let's do another one so they did another one and I was like oh yeah that's fine that's fine and they ended up using the first take so <laughs> so a song that was knocked out in about well the vocal was knocked out in about 10 minutes according to Steve Barron then went, I think it made the top three in, in the UK and did very well. And indeed was what the opening song, at, um, a friend of mine, if you're listening to this, Mark and Natalie, it was the opening song at their wedding. Oh. It was together in Electric Dreams, and I thought that's a brilliant... They wouldn't tell me what it was, and when I heard that, I thought that's a brilliant choice, that. Oh. So um, the song lives on more than the movie will. Now, of course, one of the reasons why it hasn't seen much of a release on DVD or Blu-ray in the same way that, say, Absolute Beginners to Gages to come out on Blu-ray and the Willie Russell play Dancing Through the Dark was in legal limbo for years, was just the sheer amount of music contained in it because you've got rights issues, you've got to clear it with the artists from different release. So at the minute, there's no Blu-ray release in the US and the Blu-ray release in the UK has, you know, has a decent making of documentary on it with uh, an interview with the two leads but for example the videos of all the songs aren't included and it's the kind of thing one year Lenny Van Dolan did say oh Criterion are looking at releasing it and I thought it wasn't on April the 1st and I thought maybe it's joking and then I thought well no it's it is the kind of thing actually if they're going to do stuff like Fast Times at Richmond High then Electric Dreams isn't outside their remit really and it would be the kind of thing they would do really well. But I think that's very unlikely to happen simply because of all the rights and who owns what now that Virgin has been taken over. 
and by EMI, and then I think it's Universal now on the Virgin back catalogue. And Virgin Films, of course, went bankrupt, and MGM went into financial difficulty. So it's a case of who owns what. So if you want to see this film, you can see it on DVD or Blu-ray in the UK, but it is very bare bones, which is a shame. Or do you think it just doesn't deserve any tender loving care? No, not at all. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm very much uh, an archivist by nature, and I, I hate to see the any film get caught in legal limbo. I, I, I think any film deserves its audience, the, pe- the people who love it, unless it was, you know, grossly offensive and in some in some way. If it was, the only way I'd want a film to disappear would be if it was, if it was, you know, racist or something. But even filmmakers like Lenny Riefenstahl who were associated with the Nazis, some of their work, or, or D.W. Griffiths, Birth of the Nations, some of their work has been preserved just for, for the cinematic uh, value, rather than even though it was tied, uh, uh, rightly or wrongly, to, to dubious or abhorrent political philosophy. But, you know, back to Electric Dreams. Uh, I I enjoyed it. Like I said, I was very charmed by the love story. I mean, I thought it was way for fan. And again, like I say, it was, I think it was more high school love story because... They, they briefly go on this tangent where, you know, as a couple, they're, they're running into difficulty <laughs> because, of the, because of the computer. But there's never any doubt that they're, they're going to be driving off into the sunset together. I mean, literally. But, you know, I, I think it was very much, you know, a child of the 80s and not just through the soundtrack and everything, but like you, you're quite right, the technology. I mean, I always have, I have a soft spot for not just the James Bond films of any era, but particularly the 60s James Bond films and also the spy-fi rip-offs of the 60s. And if you look at the computers in those films, uh, very early mainframe computers, they, they, they always have the spinning tape that looks like a giant Walkman. Uh, and and they have they have something like 100 wires coming out of the back and, and it looks like just one massive fire hazard. So it was interesting to see the... Um, state-of-the-art technology in this film you know and even just going to his to his, his little local computer shop his vision of, of curry's uh, and, and seeing them talk through the technology and and just the general belief from like maybe the 60s to the 80s that they didn't realize you know as technology gets more sophisticated it tends to get smaller and obviously computers the more they're miniaturized the better they get uh, everything looks so big it looks like giant tvs and but, uh, you know, it was it was charming. And, and San Francisco looked, you know, very agreeable. Uh, the, the filming in the, the famous areas with the steep roads, you know, famous from Bullet and Zodiac, and, you know, crime movies like that. Uh, you know, I thought it was quite diverting. Um, I, uh, you, I mean, you couldn't make it today, but probably because technology is just so uh, damn uh, reliable, more, much more reliable. And again, we've got Alexa, so... So I guess it was ahead of its time. It, 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 it did see some of the directions that technology was going in. Well, well now that Peter Greenaway's fallen out with Michael Nyman, maybe he can... Um... <laughs> is Giorgio Moroder still alive? He is, yes. He's still going. He recently, well, when I say recently, in the last five years, did an album called Deja Vu. Okay. And he's, he, well, he's, he kind of drifts in and out of fashion. There's always somebody remixing the stuff if he's not recording new stuff. So, yes, um, can you imagine Peter Greenaway and Giorgio Moroder? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kind of a bit of Euro, it would have a kind of slight Euro disco soundtrack to it. 
you know, if you can imagine, have you ever seen Midnight Express? I mean, that's Giorgio yes. Moroder doing the score on that. Obviously, yes. Flashdance, uh, The Neverending Story was another Giorgio um, collaboration. Didn't he uh, do The Untouchables? Giorgio Moroder. Was that, oh no, was that Ennio anyway Morricone? Oh, who did that? That was Ennio Morricone did The Untouchables. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine, um, Giorgio would have had a bit more thumping disco to it. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I, I, I think I was getting confused because obviously The Untouchables is a very 80s movie. And I think what's kind of clever about Morricone, what he does is he tends to give a kind of period soundtrack with an 80s feel. So the period is, what, the 20s. And uh, but the soundtrack has this marvellous 80s feel to it. But I guess Moroder would have made that a bit too 80s. It wouldn't mm. have quite have straddled both uh, both decades. I'm just imagining now, I'm seeing if you put the thought in my head, Giorgio Moroder doing the thing. Oh, right. Okay, you know, yeah. because that was Morricone as well. <laughs> yeah. Or a bit before his time, can you imagine if uh, Moroder had done the spaghetti westerns? Yeah. <laughs> With the theme, but a bit of a disco thumping track underneath. Yeah, so well, oh. did, did he do cat people he did do cat people yes. absolutely and did um, he work on the song with, with david he did do i'm not going to sing too much because i don't want to get us a, a copyright strike thanks very yeah. much but let me just see what else he uh but yes the because of course niall had to re-record it for let's dance let's see what else um and of course uh what else he's also made non Top, you know, it's non-soundtrack albums. Uh, let's have a look. He, he co-wrote "Take My Breath Away" by um, Berlin. He also did a version of Metropolis, where he colorized it and put a kind of more conventional score to it, which I have time for. That's that was before a lot of the footage turned up, but and it is very eighties. But if you like, for example, the Freddie Mercury song "Love Kills," that's from the um, Metropolis soundtrack, and it's worth a look. Uh, flashed out Scarface, he did the music too. Oh, yes. Um, Midnight Express, obviously, another one. Uh, yes, Cat People, Electric Dreams, um, The Never Ending Story, Over the Top, that's Stallone, oh, that's a Stallone classic, that, isn't it? Oh, the arm wrestling one. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, imagine he would have been briefed. Can you try and make arm wrestling exciting musically? Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a tough call isn't it <laughs> yeah uh, oh the other thing he did was for American Gigolo of course he did the soundtrack yeah. to that including the wonderful collaboration with Blondie Call Me oh yeah so that was him so he does have his moments although sometimes I think the movie that his <laughs> movies that his music produced in don't always work but there you are yes so it, I'm sure Peter could still call on um, on Giorgio to help him out with the soundtrack if he's doing a thumping Euro classic. Yeah. Could you um, describe any of Peter Greenaway's films as some um, thumping Euro classics? Well, how about the, those ones that you said were too arty with no plot? Oh, the Tulsi Leaf uh, suitcases. Oh, I mean, one of them's on YouTube. It is, it is unwatchable, but uh, I mean, they're mostly kind of multimedia things, um, you know, with kind of split screens and, you know, not just 50-50 split, but, um, you know, multiple headshots and everything. Um, and that was during his Cinema is Dead period. And, mm. uh, and you're like, okay, Peter, well, what's the point of me watching this then if, if Cinema is Dead? But I just thought of another connection, actually, because um, we were talking earlier about all the 
young people who got their start in the film who, who, who were nearer at the beginning of their career, you know, the Cup of Thief, like Tim Roth and Sirian Hines. Uh, Gary Olson, do you remember Gary Olson? He was the uh, the star of 2.4 Children, that family-friendly sitcom. Yeah. Um, but interesting, I only found out this recently. Gary Olson, I didn't realise he, he passed away quite a while ago. He died in about 2000. Right. Um, of, of cancer. But his first wife was a woman who was born, Claire Dunkel. She changed her name to Candy Davis to work as a glamour model and a page free model and appeared in things like the Benny Hill show and the two Ronnies and Are You Being Served? Very, very beautiful woman. And yeah, I was working as a glamour model. Briefly married to Gary Olson. Then she moved to Japan where she, um, she developed a fascination with death after seeing three people die in quick succession. One was a heart attack, the other was an accident at a construction site, the other one was poisoned by a scorpion or something nasty, it had an extreme allergic reaction. Uh, developed this fascination with death. This, this is going somewhere, trust me. Uh, then moved to Washington DC, worked in the film school for a bit, moved back to England, on a whim decides to write this novel because she's got this kind of morbid fascination with death. So she writes a kind of crime horror novel. and. Turns out it gets picked up. She gets something like a £200,000 advance. She publishes it under the name Mo Hader, and she becomes one of the really big crime novelists of her generation. I, but I, I didn't know who she was until I read her obituary because she died just at last year of um, motor neuron disease. Uh, Mark Billingham wrote her obituary in The Guardian. Uh, she had a really eclectic life, you know, from, from, um, from glamour model and working in you know, borderline porn to, you know, moving to Japan, the US and back here and become this really successful novelist. I was just amazed at the story. And she was married to Gary Olson, who was in The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover. So so there you go. It's just a web of connections. What the world's just one big village, isn't it, really? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty much, yeah. Well, well done. We, we, we've gone through two 80s classics, both very different films, but both very 80s films. Um, I, I, I I liked Electric Dreams. I couldn't watch it again because what? Uh, yeah, I know. I'm sorry, but I thought the plot was so thin. I was just like, well, there were times when I thought it could barely get to the next scene, so I'm not sure I could watch it again. <laughs> um, but um, with I mean, you mentioned War Games. Were there any other films of that period where that were really kind of computer centric that that you'd really recommend? whether they've dated or not, or whether they were quite prophetic. Red Dawn is very much of its time, but it's a John Milius classic that, um, where they, but you know, it's the way things are going. The Russians could invade again, couldn't they? Yeah. But it's not so much computers, but it's very much an 80s film, obviously in the same way as war games. And of course, Blue Thunder is one where the technology, well, the film said, actually the technology is just around the corner. So what we're using in the film isn't so far-fetched. I think what was far-fetched there was the idea that a helicopter loaded with all that equipment would be able to slow down its rotor speed and not plunge from the sky. But there you are. So I think a lot of 80s films around that time were looking at this is what the technology could do. And then it just took a couple of decades for the technology to catch up to, you know, it can do now what they thought it could do then. So what we're just waiting on for now, obviously, is for singularity to happen and for us to get taken over by the machines and Skynet to become self-aware. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe Skynet can take over the Terminator franchise and not, and not screw it up like, 
like what the studios are doing. True. One last thing again. Sorry. Um, was Blue Thunder inspired in part by the '84 LA Olympics? Yes, it was uh, inspired by that. In fact, the whole the cover premise of Blue Thunder was that it was going to be for the 84 Olympics as it came out in 83. And of course, the technology would, turns out it's going to be used for no, more nefarious means. The original inspiration apparently came to Dan O'Bannon when he was lying in bed and just kept hearing helicopters buzzing overhead and just thought, you know, imagine if they were buzzing overhead and just could their level of surveillance was far greater than we thought. Mm-hmm. But you never know. Dear listeners, Blue Thunder might turn up in a later episode, so I don't want to say too much. Well, when I first turned on Electric Dreams, I think the story starts in LA, and I was like, oh, it's 84, it's LA, and it reminded me of Blue Thunder, and I thought it was, oh, we were going to get something about the Olympics here, but then they went to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. It went in a bit of a, of a tangent, but... Yeah, I think LA is awful for helicopters. Um, but then again, you know, just think, well, 10 years later, we were all glued to our TV sets watching O.J. Simpson being chased down the freeway. Mm-hmm. And it was it was helicopters getting the shots. So, um, yeah, I, I guess prototype satellites. <laughs> okay, uh, well, shall we leave it there? I, I think we've defended our films as best we can. And um, I hope watching The Cook, The Fifa's Wife and I Love It wasn't pure torture for you. It wasn't it wasn't as violent to, for, for you as it was for some of the characters. But... No, it was, it, was, it was interesting to watch it again. Like you in Electric Dreams, I don't intend to watch it again, ever. But it wasn't a chore. It was kind of just going, just reminded me how long ago it had been since I'd previously seen it. Far too many years. But anyway, certainly I prefer it above Barry Lyndon, let me put it that way. Barry Lyndon is still firmly at the bottom of my list. Right, okay. So we're three episodes in. Does that mean for, for another episode I'm going to have to find something you hate even more? Or that, that would just be too cruel. That would be, that would be too cruel, you know. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you again soon. See you again soon, everybody. Good night, goodbye. You've been listening to Highbrow Lowbrow, presented by Steve Pyle and Dan Slattery. We'd love to hear from you, and you can contact us by going to our link tree. That's linktr.ee forward slash highbrow lowbrow. Until next time, keep it highbrow and lowbrow.